Well, what a unique time uh, between Halloween and yes, I was doing so well till about uh, 15 minutes ago when I slipped a mini O'Henry bar before hopping on here. We all have our moments. My house is inundated with candy as I'm sure, especially if you're a parent, many of your homes is as well. And then the time change. And uh, we always joke that this is the good time change. So normally when we're together and gathering together in a, in a physical place, in the springtime, we're always like emailing and messaging people, reminding them about the time change uh, because that one is you lose an hour. So you end up an hour late if you're not on the ball. The fall time change, we never send anything out, no text anything because we always say, and we always joke, maybe some people would show up on time. I'm just joking, we love you. But I love this time change because you get the extra hour and here we are with an extra hour, which is amazing. So we hope you're doing well. Why don't we do this? We've never done this. Maybe this is totally awkward, but uh, I see like names and some pictures out in cyber world. Why don't we add like a, a 30, like a 10 second uh, little bit to our gatherings here. Let's do the awkward thing. If you feel comfortable, if you don't, why don't you turn on your camera quick and just give everybody like a five second wave. Can we do this? Am I revolting against this whole idea of, yeah. Good to see you all. Yes, hello, welcome. So great, especially some of you that are newer. So great to have you guys, uh, guys with us. And look at that, there's people out there. You just, sometimes you never know, it's all good. This is Zoom life. Uh, you can turn them off now. You can, you can keep them on. You can turn them off. You can do whatever you want. I know this Zoom world is so funny. Some of you are on it all the time for work, so I totally get it. But as we've said this fall, we're really in, in a time and place where we just really feel like it's important to be together. And so we know there's numbers of people in our community that, you know, uh, online may be more difficult or whatever. Totally get that. But we just felt like uh, this is important. With that said, hope you're well. Hopefully you're, you're surviving the weekend and uh, I know it's a bit of a rainy day today. Couple things before we jump in and the hope this morning is not to be too long but I do think uh, we have some engaging stuff to jump into. First of all, parents, uh, well done. Thanks for being here. Hopefully you are well. A reminder that we are releasing every single weekend a kid's lesson and we do encourage you to jump on with your kids with that. Um, it's great, great stuff. So Team Fest did it this morning. I think it was about like 14 or 15 minutes long. The kids started a brand new series today on the image of God and it's really fun stuff. Stuff even in those lessons that you can do with parents in the moment. Stuff on the screen. So we encourage you to do that. That's a uh, a great opportunity just for you to continue to engage while we can't be together, at least for the time being. The second thing is we, uh, every season we have a um, uh, uh, local outreach that we jump in on. We join in in helping and joining in with other organizations in the city. So this is a quarterly thing that we do all the time. And this fall, we're partnering with Arcade Mission downtown and our friends there. They are amazing. They have served well over 15,000 meals since the beginning of COVID. And we had a chance in October to go and serve there. It was fantastic. We served on that evening 180 meals. Some of the other organizations have actually kind of shut down during this time. And it's really hard. Everybody Everybody's trying to sort this kind of new season out. So that has uh, sent a lot of people to the doors of Arcade and uh, we just want to help. And so we were able to provide those meals out of the money that many of you have contributed. So thank you for that. 
And so we're going back. And if you want to join us next Sunday evening, so we're going to have a gathering in the morning, but if you want to join a small team of people, maybe 10 or 12 people, we're going to prepare the Sunday meal there. And what we do is we just go in at about three o'clock. We uh, prepare the meal together and then it will be served by the team there. So if you want to jump in on that, just let us know at hello at mypraxis.church. We'd love for you to join us. And like I said, we're just doing everything that we can to to support uh, the arcade and what they're doing in the mission there. So a great way for us to do that and kind of reach out. Okay, so if you want to do that again, hello at mypraxis.church. Just reach out to us and we would love to just get you involved next Sunday, which is November the 8th, and joining in together. And then the other thing is we have a youth community that meets uh, virtually right now on Zoom on Thursdays and a great community of people. So thankful for Alicia and Heidi and the whole team. These guys are amazing and uh, really taking time with our students. So grades five and up to uh, just jump in with them, lead them through some curriculum and uh, have some discussion. And I get to kind of peek in, no pressure, Alicia and Heidi, by the way, no absolutely pressure but sometimes I'll walk by and I just hear the fruit that is coming from these lessons and from getting our, our students to engage so well done on that and if you have a child in grade five or older get them involved with this it's awesome all the announcements all that said hopefully you're well just let's do this let's take a deep breath really quickly together take a big deep breath and if you have a Bible, which you probably do, uh, it's probably on your phone or device, or if you're like paper style, open it up with me to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three. And if you wanna as well, uh, put a thumb in your Bible or get that search wheel ready, because I think this is the new reality. We're also gonna be in John eight really quickly. Now, if you're brand new, just joining us, jumping in, we are in the midst of a series called Dear Wormwood. Uh, there's a classic book by the brilliant C.S. Lewis where he writes satire. And the whole story is this senior demon named Screwtape writing a junior demon named Wormwood. And he's writing him letters and how they're going to work to deceive the patient. And the patient is a human, a follower of Jesus. And they're working together how to scheme this patient away from Jesus and God's kingdom. And it's a brilliant, again, we've said the last couple weeks, I'll probably say it 10 more times before we're done. It's a brilliant way of looking at the world and a brilliant way of looking at evil. And uh, you know, one of the things that Screwtape actually writes to Wormwood is he says, it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds, yet in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Screwtype is like, man, one of the best ways that we can deceive the humans is by keeping things out of their minds. And so if you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, that's actually what we've kind of bared down on, is how the enemy, the principalities, the powers, the Satan as we know him, is all about, in many ways, keeping things out of our minds. In particular, keeping this reality of spiritual warfare and the work of the enemy out of our minds. We've just been talking about how easy it is in the Western world. You can go back and listen and watch if you want how easy it is in the Western world just to think that this kind of stuff is a joke. That is exactly what the Satan wants to do in our Western cultural moment. You know, we kind of saw it last night, right? The pitchforks and the the red tights out and the capes out, kind of this idea that this is kind of a joke when it comes to the adversary. What we're going to do now is we're actually going to switch gears and over the, the next number of weeks leading in 
to uh, Christmas, which is you know on its way, it's on the horizon, we're going to talk about how actually the opposite is true, that the enemy can infiltrate our minds and our thinking about things that aren't true. We're going to lay the foundation today talking quickly about lies. And then over the next number of weeks before Christmas, we're going to talk about different things that Screwtape writes to Wormwood in areas like sex and money and power and anxiety in prosperity, in prayer, in relationships, how the adversary wants to get in and really subtly mess with us. And so we're going to switch gears here, and I think it's going to be really profound as we look at just these little areas in our lives, especially as kind of modern Western European people, how this can be of influence in our lives. All right, so that's the plan for the next bunch of weeks. We're switching gears here. But listen, one of the things we have to do is we have to lay and continue to lay more of a foundation around who the Satan is or the adversary is and what his character is like. Some people have asked, why don't you just say Satan? Uh, often you hear in my language and maybe in our language, we use this kind of term, the Satan. I do that intentionally because Satan, Hasatan, is not the devil's name as much as it is a title. And I just want to keep that before us. And I think that's one little way of doing that. But Genesis 3, the the creation, the Hebrew creation narrative is really one of the ways in which we see right from the onset the way the Satan works. Look with me. Uh, Genesis 3, let's read a little bit. Uh, We're going to actually read a little bit today. Kind of slow down for a couple minutes, read the text together, and just see here. So Genesis 3 verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say to us, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes, they're going to be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. They sewed fig trees together and made coverings for themselves. From the beginning of time, we see that really at the heart of the Satan's schemes is lies. This is it right here. God clearly instructs his people, clear as day, proto-human in the garden, Adam and Eve. Hey, listen. You you have the ability to steward. This is yours. You're going to cultivate with me. You're going to rule as kings and queens with me. But there's one thing that you cannot do. And of course, the Satan comes in in his scheming ways with his lies and basically asks them, did God really say this? A massive redefinition of what God says. This is how the Satan works. Getting us to think, did God really really say this? Did he really speak this? And then obviously this picture that the Satan paints for proto-human, that you will not certainly die. This age-old trick of the enemy that there are no consequences for disobedience. And so this is how things shape up early on. I mean, this was foundational to the Hebrew people. This would have been in Jesus' framework as he gets on the scene in the Gospels and he himself is tempted by 
the enemy, this is in the framework, that the enemy comes early on. And one of the things, it's interesting that he does, he doesn't like just blow up Adam and Eve. He doesn't just like kill them. He doesn't use a bazooka and take them out. More subtly, what he does is he uses lies and deception and disinformation to lead humans away from God's good intention with the world. You with me? This is foundational to the Bible and to the creation story. So then you get to Jesus in John 8. Flip there with me. John chapter 8. And Jesus, I mean, we've talked the last couple weeks. He gets on the scene, man, and it is like on like Donkey Kong with the spiritual powers. You know, often I say we love things about Jesus, his love, his justice, all that is beautiful. But actually one of the things that you see with Jesus is right off the onset, he's driving out demons, this kind of stuff that we don't like to talk about in the Western world. He's, he's dealing with this and dealing with the enemy. And there's a picture in John 8 where Jesus is just near the temple. This is what it says. Read with me verse 31. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you, my friends, are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth, very infamous passage, the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? Now, if you just think back to Sunday school, is this true that they were never slaves? Well, obviously we know. Israel had a long history uh, under an oppressive king named Pharaoh. Just funny in their language here. They've already kind of forgotten, it sounds like. Verse 34, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, that you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. Though we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, Jesus says, you do not believe in me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin if I am telling the truth? Why don't you believe me? And then Jesus says, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Now, I know that's a ton of text, but here is Jesus with people who have this foundation. They have the Hebrew creation account. They have the story of Israel embedded in their lives. Many of them would have known it by heart. And yet Jesus says that they are actually sons of the Satan, of the devil. And we get a clear picture here of who Jesus believed. First of all, Jesus believed 
the devil. He believed in the devil, that this was real, that this was reality. He believed that the principalities and powers. So many people say, I want to be like Jesus. Well, Jesus took this posture. He understood spiritual evil and spirit, fallen spiritual beings were a reality. But he also clearly defines here who the enemy is. He's a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says, not holding to the truth. And he lies. So much so that Jesus basically drops the mic here and declares that Jesus, or sorry, that the devil, the Satan, is the father of lies, that he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And then Jesus abruptly says, listen, I tell you the truth, but let's call it what it is. Let's call a spade what it is. Let's put it out here on the table. The Satan is by identity a murderer and a liar. The Satan is a murderer and a liar. Jesus puts this before us, that the great scheme of the enemy, again, is not just like bazookas and bombs and bullets, but it is disinformation. It is getting us to believe in an alternative reality, to get us to buy into deception. And I think you'd probably agree with me that we live right now in a moment where there is a deficiency of truth. It's going to be a big week here, especially if you are American. The next week is a very interesting week in the history of the world. Who knows what's going to unfold? It's interesting that even in 2016, that Oxford Dictionary used this word as its word of the year. This word was post-truth. And they did this because of all the events of Brexit during that year and obviously the presidential campaign uh, where Donald Trump became president. And so... It's just crazy that the word of the year in 2016 was post-truth. We live, we live in a time where this is like an appropriate word for our time and place and moment. And I just think in the West, as I've said before, that the enemy's tactic is often not what we think it is. It's not this like, some, a lot of times it's not in your face, especially in the Western world. Sometimes we don't see it as in your face, but it is slow and it is subtle. And the Satan is the father of lies. And I think, again, we need to put it out there that he is working overtime for us to believe in things that are not true and not reality. Now, he's a pastor, but he's also a cultural critic. His name is Mark Sayers. We've used Mark's work over time, and I engaged this about 10 years ago, uh, reading some of his work, and he's written a lot over the last decade or, or so. And he does a great job at basically explaining the enemy's tactic in our moment as and using the metaphor of uh, war or modern war as an example of just how this all shapes up. And I was going to explain this, but he does a great job here. So I just want to put into context for us kind of what the spiritual adversary wants to do uh, and using modern war as um, a metaphor for us. So check this out. This is really great. Now, there's one dominant military in the world... Australia? No, not really. (laughs) The United States. And since the United States has been the dominant force in the world, since 1989 when the Soviet Union fell, we've been in what's called a unipolar world. We're about to move back into a bipolar world with the rise of China. Within 10 years, we'll double the GDP of the United States. And that will have tremendous military implications. That's another lecture series. Back to what I'm talking about. (laughs) At this point, what has happened is a number of countries 
realizing that America is the dominant superpower in the world, have created other concepts of war. Some of them go back, some of them have contemporary uh, expressions, but the, the war that is being used by other countries is called either asymmetrical warfare or dirty war. Asymmetrical warfare is you don't go straight onwards. You don't meet the enemy on the battlefield. You use irregular troops. You ferment insurrections in the opposite country. You get various minorities in that country to rebel. You flood with disinformation. You hack. You take over media. You insert false narratives into that culture. This is dirty war. It is not just meeting with tanks. It is changing minds. Now, there's a book called War in 140 Characters about the effect of Twitter on war by, I think his name's David, uh, Michael Patriarchios, and he says that war is no longer what we thought it was, which is, I'm going to take your territory. Like, no one's going to come and take America's territory. Red Dawn, it's a fantasy. <laughs> but what he said now is, war's not about taking territory, it's about controlling the narrative. Another book called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media by Peter W. Singer, not, Singer, not Peter Singer, the Australian ethicist, but Peter W. Singer, he says that even if you control the territory now, you still have to control the narrative, because if you don't control the narrative, you'll lose the territory. Okay, so how this is playing out is that people around the world have realized that one of the most effective ways that they can wage war is not just their air force, not just their, their, their army, not just their navy. Around the world, people are building troll farms. You've heard about Russia and their troll farms. This week we heard about Saudi Arabia and their troll farms. People are realizing that through social media, you can create disinformation warfare in other countries, fermenting tremendous confusion and social unrest. And they now have bots, and this is literally just level one, we're gonna to go to level 10 in the next three years, but they now have bots which can look, I read about this, where they can send you messages of disinformation. First of all, they work out what you're afraid of. Are you afraid about your job going? Maybe you've typed into Google, what if I lose my job? They will send you a message, migrants are coming to take your job illegal immigrants are coming to take your job. They will tailor a message for you, and not only that, they know the time of day when you are most emotionally susceptible to a fake news story where you'll be open because that's when, according to the emotional cartography that they've created of your social media habits, when that message of fear will strike home the most powerfully. 11.10 at night, that's when you, how do I deal with anxiety? into Google. So we have this now, and this is just level one, it's gonna to go to level 10. That's another lecture series I'll come back and do. Um, but the elemental forces don't have a military which is gonna come and take your territory because Christ has defeated them, but they are waging a disinformation warfare campaign against you, and their power is when you don't notice them, and they can take you captive through their deceptive philosophy. An interesting way, I think, to look not just at our current moment. Um, listen, I don't think this is conspiracy theory time. I don't think that at all. I think this is true. But I also think in comparing it to how the enemy wants to work, this is a great comparison. 
uh, the slow, it's slow, it's internal. This is uh, the the Satan, um, we got to give props in some ways to um, it being smart in the way in which deception actually works. Again, it's not bombs and bullets. It's not just taking us out. It's the slow lull away from the kingdom of God. And man, I've just been thinking this week, uh, I've seen this over the last decade and a half. Yes, as we kind of, as I kind of get older, you know, I've been in full-time pastoral ministry this December, I think for like 16 years or something. And this has been the thing. It isn't like blatant stuff. It's the slow lull. And I was just even reflecting over the last decade, you know, the podcast movement over the last decade, pushing against fundamentalism, which is which was necessary. Many of us, some of you have grown up in fundamentalist homes. And so there were these shows and podcast shows from dudes' basements where they're drinking beer. It was just so cool, you know, where there was this deconstruction of fundamentalism. And again, some of that was necessary, but I've seen uh, the wake of like terminal deconstruction. I've seen in the wake how that can be, how that can affect people, you know, to lots of questions over the last number of years, especially for kids growing up in the church. Does the church really matter? To a guy named Rob writing and question, questioning everything about a decade, decade ago. And by the way, I actually really like the guy named Rob, but many did not in that moment have the emotional or spiritual intelligence to really wrestle through what he was saying. And so there's the wake of that. And there's the conservative kid who moves to the city. This has been like the last decade in our church. You know, conservative kids that grew up in conservative homes will move to the city and, you know, their parents really want them to get involved with the church. But as with university and college comes freedom and freedom can breed things in people's lives. And obviously with freedom comes sometimes consequences. And even now with COVID, it's just, it's interesting. The continual push right now to rethink everything, which I'm, there's part of me that's for that, the, that de- parts of deconstruction can be healthy, but it seems like COVID has spurred on this continual push to rethink everything we've ever done. And I know just amongst pastors and people, there is this, and even in the church, there's this sense that there's a deepening lack of participation. And I just want to show us, like, as I've just been, as I've been thinking through the last decade of my life and some of the things I've seen and experienced, again, I'm not sure the Satan really wants you and I to become a Satanist or part of a cult. I'm not sure if he really wants us to be a leader of a sex or drug ring. I mean, that may happen to somebody, but I'm not sure for people inside the church that that's really the the enemy's tactic. As much as it is, he wants, the enemy wants us to believe lies. Subtly, slowly believe lies. He wants us to have one foot in each camp. As I heard somebody jokingly say this week, I think or jokingly say, really what the enemy wants us to do is he wants us to pull our groins. He wants us to have, what? Yeah, he wants us to have one foot in each camp and that is continually tearing us apart. I don't think it's ending up in a place really quickly where we it just came out of nowhere. I think it's slow and it's subtle and this is where it works. And what Sayers is saying here about the current political reality in the world that we live in and all the changes spiritually, I think the adversary, the enemy is on a disinformation campaign. This is how he rolls. He wants us to buy into disinformation slowly and subtly. 
And so listen, you know, if you've been around the teaching, you know that there is room here for openness and honesty and deconstruction and wrestling through this stuff. If you've been around our community, I have shared openly over the years about my own journey. I grew up in a beautiful home and family, a pastor's home, super thankful, but I have been on my own journey of deconstruction and coming back to the reality of what is true and are there things that I embraced that weren't necessarily true or weren't necessarily the main thing. And I think that's important. But I also do think in the deconstruction moment, in the deconstructive moment we've been in the last number of years, especially in a a more post-Christian world, I think we have to now deconstruct our deconstruction. And um, I think it's important for us to engage in how the Satan or the powers and principalities could even work in these little these little ways in which we could be open to certain deconstruction that really doesn't need to happen. And I've seen this in my own life. Um, what, what I want to do here is just quickly, we just want to show you a clip. Here is a guy named Aegis Swoboda, who uh, we've read through his book on Sabbath. He's a great thinker and theologian, a pastor. And he's just, I was going to talk a little, little about, a bit about this, but I feel like he does such a, an amazing job at talking about where we've gotten with deconstruction and now how we just need to think through this and in some ways be careful. So check this out. Let's go back to the whole uh, theme of deconstruction. So you, you, I mean, you, you kind of hinted or not hinted, but you mentioned, you know, you went through a phrase, a phase of deconstruction. Can you tease that out a little more? What did that look like? How far did you get to the edge of just denying the faith? What brought you back and what kind of advice would you give to somebody else who's maybe teetering on that edge of like, I'm not sure if I'm going to, stay in this whole Christian thing anymore? Well, there were, there were a couple of stories along the way that kind of opened my eyes to what was happening. Um, uh, I I think the main story uh, for me, two, two main stories for me that really opened my eyes to what was going on. Um, When I graduated seminary, I um, started teaching and um, what I began to find, this was in the mid thousands, late thousands, I began to find that my students in the seminary classroom were increasingly coming to the seminary environment, not to learn how to serve the church, but were coming because they were mad at the church. Um, meaning they were coming uh, to get equipped um, or coming coming to deal with the pain from the church. And that's absolutely natural. And in, in a lot of ways, seminaries really healthy for that. It can be healthy that you go to seminary as a way to process the difficulty of the church. But I began to find increasingly students who were coming to seminary um, who were coming to find what was wrong with the church or to find what was wrong with scripture or were coming to find the... Not all. I'm just saying I it was there was an increase in that. And I began to notice this kind of deconstruction spirit. And then the second story was I went on a mission trip to North Africa, and we went to the nation of Tunisia. And uh, I remember we went on, on this trip. There were, in this one city we were in, 13 known Christians of about a million people. Wow. And we we're this you know, group of uh, Christians coming to Tunisia, and I asked if we could meet with the, these 13 Christians. And the, the leader in that particular city who knew those Christians who met once a week uh, by candlelight with a broken guitar and one Bible that they shared in a nation where it's illegal to, to largely be, be, a, be a Christian. Um, they said that we couldn't meet with them. And, and I asked why we couldn't. And they said, 
Um, and th- this was a big moment for me. They said, because, <laughs> because we don't want your white European faith to rub off on them. <laughs> okay. And I don't know what it was about that. But something clicked in me where I began to understand that this kind of deconstructed Christianity that we were kind of being fed back here in the States was the absolute enemy of the faith of the poor of Tunisia. Hmm. Wow. And that actually me undoing the Bible in my deconstruction cool way back here was actually the enemy of the faith of these people in poverty. And I began to see, I, this, I, I may get, you may get letters for this and I may too. Um, but I began to see that a deconstructed Christianity um, was the enemy of the poor. The enemy of the and poor. That the, wow. the enemy of the poor. And that the, 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 the faith of the poor in Tunisia believed in the Jesus of the Bible so much and their whole life was based on, on a love of that Jesus. And that, and that my deconstructed version of Christianity was actually more a reflection of wanting a God who looked more like me than the God who actually was. And I began to see that there is an element of deconstructed Christianity that is theological colonialism. <laughs> I want to sit on okay. that for a second. I, I, okay. Let me, let me, I okay. want to, um... <laughs> I'm just, I'm okay. chewing, man. Okay. Let me, chewing. Let, me there, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. We do not go to the Bible to read about the poor. We go to the Bible to hear from the poor. Hmm. The Bible was written by poor, marginalized people of color. Hmm. And when I read my Bible and I tell the Bible to say stuff that it doesn't say about sexuality, about, um, about truth, about reality, when I tell the poor voices in Scripture that they need to shut up and take my Western white ideals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is theological colonialism. Mm. So strong words, but I think something for us to chew on. Um, I think there needs to be room for deconstruction. But you know, one of the things I think many of us, because our community has been fairly younger and many of you are my age or a little younger, um, is we maybe have looked at our parents' generation and some of the colonization that has come over the years with our parents and grandparents. And even before that, as missionaries would go, there was a lot of colonization and uh, you know things that shouldn't have happened in a lot of times people's desire to take the gospel around the world. But are we, and we cringe at that. And I think there's some of that that's very much cringeworthy. But what about the type of deconstruction that North American Christianity has tried to export to the world. What a great example to show us that um, this could be a way in which uh, we could be distracted and slowly drift. 
I think there's something there for us. Again, deconstruct. We, you need to wrestle. Part of being a community and a part of a church is we wrestle through this. It's not easy. Again, I've shared tons about my own journey. But we also need to caution from the danger of... Um, yeah, just this reality of trying to export a certain type of way in which we view the world, maybe the majority world doesn't. I think we need to keep this before us. Theological colonization. What a interesting way, I think, to look at this. Now, love you guys. To close, here's what we're going to do. Um, this is a series called Dear Wormwood. I want to just for two seconds here, as we close, just look at what uh, Screwtape writes Wormwood in letter eight. So the Screwtape letters is 31 different letters. And in letter eight, Screwtape, Senior Demon is writing Wormwood, Junior Demon again, and how they're going to deceive this human, this follower of Jesus. And Screwtape says this, he says, humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. The enemies, who the enemy is God, the God's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father, who's the devil, remember they're demons, to withdraw his support from him. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an object, their bodies, their passions, and their imaginations are in continual change for to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach, the humans are, to consistency, therefore, is undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. Undulation. Interesting. Now, right here, I think what, what Screwtape is saying to Wormwood is that the humans, and you are human, and I, as am I, we change. Our bodies our passions, our emotions, all of it changes over time. And this idea of undulation is really this law that Screwtape is writing to Wormwood about, about humans continually change. And one of the things that Christian humans often do is they return back to God, to formation. So at moments in our lives, we have peaks and we have valleys. We have mountaintop times and we have what other thinkers call the dark night of the soul. And so this is what uh, Screwtape is kind of communicating with Wormwood. Listen, there's ups and downs. This is what I think he's saying. There's peaks and valleys. This is what it means to be human. Continue to read with me. This is what Screwtape says. If you had watched your patient, so if you'd watched the human that you're trying to deceive carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life. His interest in work, his uh, affection to his friends, his physical appetites all go up and down as long as he lives on earth Periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They are merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless we make use of it. And so Screwtape is saying to Wormwood, listen, this whole idea of the ups and downs, this process or this law of undulation in a human's life, we need to make good of it. We need to take advantage of it. We need, I think what Screwtape is saying, is when there are feelings of being down or distant or far from God, we need to take that and we need to make good use of it and we need to deceive the human. And yes, there are moments in our lives of ups and downs and all that we see and experience 
And the enemy wants to come in and devour. And one of the ways he wants to devour is slowly and subtly with lies. But listen to what Screwtape says to Wormwood. He says this. We're going to close with this. He says, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks round upon a universe which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet he still obeys. And I think in our moment, this is just a close, this, this should speak to us. Um, I think what Screwtape is saying to Wormwood is, watch out for humans that even when it doesn't feel right all the time, they still obey. And that's my hope for our community. And honestly, this is one thing I've been reflecting about my own life. This is one thing for my own life that I hope for is that whether I'm feeling it or not, whether you are feeling it or not, we would be people that would press in and, and resolve and resolve with our lives that whether we feel it or not, we are the ones that still obey. And though the Satan is prowling and on a mission to distract us, that we would be people that would lean into God's love. Again, even when at times it feels distant and far. Listen, the two demons corresponding here know that, man, this is, this is a case that could ruin the adversary. It could ruin uh, what the adversary wants to do. Obedience even when we don't feel it. So one of the things we wanted to do is just um, lay before us who this Satan is and ultimately the campaign that he's on. And let's just be aware.